Kia ora, g'day and welcome to the history of Aotearoa New Zealand, episode 1, The Land Time Forgot. Before we get started on the first real step on our journey, if you haven't listened to the episode before this, episode 0, I suggest you do so. It outlines what this podcast is about and will give you a better understanding of some of the things you will hear going forward. So with that, let's crack into it and cast our minds back way, way, way into the past before humans and pre-humans, when mammals mostly consisted of things like shrews. Back to when the world was made up of a few supercontinents connected together with dinosaurs ruling them and all of their terrifying might. It's the late Cretaceous, about 80 million years ago. Velociraptors, Triceratops and T-Rex have not yet appeared, but they are on the horizon few million years away from arriving in the areas that will become Asia and North America. Our focus is on Gondwana, the southern supercontinent that has been breaking away from the larger Pangean continent for tens of millions of years already. Here we find thuropod dinosaurs, the same suborder as T-Rex, along with titanosaurs, humongous sauropods related to Brachiosaurus and Diplodocus. There's also one animal in particular you may recognise from today, the tuatara. The name coming from the Māori word for peaks on the back, on account of their spines. These animals have been around for nearly 200 million years and haven't really evolved much since then and will continue to not evolve right up until the present day. It's these animals that dominate the landscape of the area that is beginning to break away from Gondwana, never to return, to become Aotearoa New Zealand. Other parts of the Gondwana supercontinent would go on to become Africa, South America, Antarctica, India and Australia. New Zealand broke away from the area that would become Australia due to plate tectonics. Although I like to think that was because Papatuanuku saw all the deadly shit Australia was getting and just said, nah, not on my land. Interestingly, the landmass that became Aotearoa was much larger than the one you see today, however, as it has been recently discovered that New Zealand was part of a much larger continent called Zealandia. The thing is, though, sometime between then and now, 93% of Zealandia got submerged, leaving behind the distinctive shape of the land that we know today, along with some islands such as New Caledonia. It's not fully known how or why this submerging happened, and in fact, it is a topic of debate whether Zealandia is even a continent to begin with. Some argue, given its size and the thickness of the crust, it should be classed as a continent. Others argue that continents aren't really allowed to be under the sea, given real life isn't like the movie 2012, where Africa just pops out of the ocean like the Flying Dutchman. As New Zealand is pulled away from Australia and Gondwana gradually, it is situated smack bang on top of the fault between the Indo-Australian and Pacific tectonic plates. This gives rise to two of the main features of the New Zealand landscape, the Southern Alps on the South Island, and the volcanoes on the North Island. Yeah, unfortunately, Europeans are a very imaginative bunch uh, when it comes to naming things. It's one of these volcanoes that actually gives rise to New Zealand's first real impact on the world stage. Going forward to the 180 CE, historians writing the Hu Shu, a Chinese chronicle, which I've probably mispronounced, describe that in the reign of Emperor Ling Ti, the sky was, quote, red with blood, unquote, for many days. This is further confirmed by the Historia Augusta, saying the sky, quote, burst into flames, unquote, and also, quote, stars remained visible by day and others elongated, seeming to hang in mid-air, unquote. Although we can't be certain, it is theorised that this event that was recorded in two separate parts of the planet was caused by the eruption of the Topor volcano, which expanded the crater lake of the same name. 
This eruption was the largest eruption in New Zealand during the last 20,000 years, and one of the most violent on the world stage in the last 5,000 years. It has been compared to the Minoan eruption of Thera that gave rise to the myth of Atlantis on account of the entire island being mostly destroyed. To just illustrate the scale of this even more, go look at an image of New Zealand today. You see the big blue bit in the middle of the North Island? That is Lake Taupo, with the Taupo volcanic zone covering a large area of the central North Island from Mount Tongariro and Ruhapehu to Rotorua. So it's not a small area. Let's go back again now to when the land was still young and not long distance itself from Australia. A time-honoured tradition still followed today. New Zealand is what we might call a biological arc, on account of all the weird and wonderful things that are here and have been cut off from the wider world due to early separation. Primordial ferns and conifers, or podocarps, cover the landscape that have given the forests an ancient feeling like stepping back through time. Anyone who has spent time in the New Zealand bush will know the feeling I'm describing. Coastal beach and forest, swamps, inland plains, subalpine ranges and mountains give Aotearoa its distinctive face. The flora was also unique compared to other areas on the planet. Frogs that don't croak or have a tadpole stage evolved with ancestors of the wetter, a native insect, one species even the size of your hand. Freshwater fish, galaxids or whitebait, Eels and colder, or freshwater crayfish, sat in the rivers. This was all to say nothing of the abundance of marine mammals like seals and dolphins, fish, stingray and shellfish in the sea. Just to really get the point across as to how weird this land is, I want to have a quick focus on one of my favourite animals, the tuatara. As I mentioned last episode, my background is in native animals and I have had the amazing privilege to work with these wonderful and interesting animals. So what is a tuatara? Well, if you go Google a picture, I'm willing to bet most of you will say, Oh wow, that's a cool looking lizard! No. We don't use the L word when we talk about these guys. They are not lizards. They are reptiles, but not lizards. If you think of a sort of tree of life, you have reptiles as the main branch, with a smaller branch coming off it labelled lizards, and another labelled sphenodon. That is where Tuatara sit. They are so unique, they sit on the same level as all other lizards in the world. There are only three extant species of them left. So let's throw some numbers at you. Tuatara can live for up to 200 to 250 years, with the oldest one in captivity being around about 120 years old at time of recording. If you have ever seen one in real life, you know that they don't really do much. That's because there isn't much going on inside of them. They can have one heartbeat for every 10 to 15 minutes, and one breath for every 30 minutes to an hour. The funny thing about that is, if you get bitten by one, they won't let go until they take their next breath, which thankfully never happened to me while I was working with them. Now anyone else in the animal conservation industry will likely tell you a good portion of their job involves trying to make rare animals, shall we say, get busy. But for Tuatara, it isn't the case of putting a man and a woman in a room, putting on some berry white with a nice glass of red, and leaving them to it. Unfortunately, females want to see two males fight before she will breed with the victor, which can be quite exciting, it can even get quite grisly. Uh, sometimes Tuatara will swipe at each other, bite each other, they get bleeding lips, bleeding sides, all that sort of good stuff. I even watched one Tuatara jump from the top of a log and pin his opponent uh, beneath his foot. 
The thing about that though, is that tuatara won't develop a gender until 20 years after hatching, which means you have about two decades of them not really being that useful if you want to breed them to release offspring into the wild. These odd creatures are also the only reptile to have a third eye, located on top of their head. It's more like a photoreceptor, that is, it only really detects light, it doesn't have a retina or anything, so we can't really see out of it. They use this to detect UV light, so they know if they should move into a sunnier or shadier spot. They use UV light for vitamin D, just like humans, so it's an important piece to have when looking after them in captivity. Anyway, before I get too carried away, although all these made New Zealand a unique ecological system and landscape, there were two even more important features that made this land, well frankly weird. The first was that apart from three species of bat, we had no native terrestrial mammals. New Zealand separated from Australia and Gondwana before the rise of marsupials which would go on to dominate a long-standing rival. And if you couldn't swim or fly, you didn't have much of a hope of crossing the Tasman Sea. The second was that someone had to fit into the same ecological niches that mammals held in most other parts of the globe. Large insects like the weta filled some of those, for instance they filled the niche of mice, but the majority were filled by birds. New Zealand is known for its abundance of bird species, most of which can't be found anywhere else on the planet. Some flew over from Australia, such as wattle birds and the kokoko and huia. Others were carried by the land, and due to the lack of mammals, became flightless, like the kākāpō. Even more were already flightless, like the tākahe and the bird we get our namesake from, the kiwi. A small brown ratite related to ostriches, with a long beak, nostrils on the tip, with the largest egg-to-body ratio of any animal in the world. Which, quite seriously, it's nuts. Humans got off light compared to them. A relative of the kiwi, another ratite that you might be familiar with, is the moa. The largest species standing at 2 metres tall at the shoulder, with an approximate 1 metre long neck, weighing in at about 230 kilograms. They were a defining feature of the New Zealand bush. Although we don't know what they sounded like, the National Museum in Wellington, Te Papa, attempted to recreate what they may have sounded like. I couldn't find a clip of that sound, but they took the call from one of their relatives, cassowaries, and lowered the pitch, among other adjustments. I encourage you to go and look up cassowary calls, and imagine hearing a deeper version of that in the middle of the dense bush, only to have it cut off. Why? Because the main predator was an eagle with a 3 metre wingspan, weighing up to 13 kgs. Probably the most terrifying animal New Zealand has ever produced. Most of the animals we have talked about are unfortunately either extinct, in the case of the huia and the moa, or severely endangered, which is pretty much the case for everything else I've talked about. There are three main reasons for this, and it all comes back to the one thing we haven't talked about. Humans. The first two are things we still deal with today. Loss of habitat due to land clearance for a variety of reasons, such as mining and farming. And hunting, which was a major factor in the extinction of the moa and huia, as their feathers and the latter's unique beak were highly prized by Māori and later European settlers. The last reason is something that you will hear about if you do something even remotely related to the outdoors here in New Zealand. The introduction of exotic mammals. Now exotic in this context doesn't mean cool or exciting. It means that the animals in question are not found naturally in that area, or in this case, group of islands. I could go on at length about this huge issue still facing the country today, and we will likely discuss it more in the future when the time comes, but for now I'll keep it brief. 
The first introduced mammal in New Zealand was the kiore, or Pacific rat, accidentally brought by Māori settlers in the 13th century. Its cousins, the Norway rat and the ship's rat, of bubonic fame, would follow with the arrival of European settlers. These rodents were brought accidentally. I mean, no one wants to bring rats with them. They eat your food stores and carry disease. But they jumped onto waka and ships and eventually found themselves in a new land. They were and are a major problem as nest robbers, eating eggs of native birds and lizards, among other things. As I said, we will likely discuss this more as we head further into our history, but needless to say, this will be a fairly big issue going forward, as some mammals will be introduced on purpose because some silly Englishman wanted to make New Zealand more like England. Next episode, we discuss how the first humans came to New Zealand with the first voyages into the Pacific and the beginning of the development of Māori culture. If you want to let me know how much you hate 40 million possums roaming in New Zealand's forests, you can contact me through email at historyaotearoa at gmail.com or you can find me on Twitter at historyaotearoa or even Facebook at History of Aotearoa New Zealand Podcast. Aotearoa spelt A-O-T-E-A-R-O-A. Haori tu atu, poki tu mai. See you next time.